All right, all right. Everybody good? Everybody doing all right? That's my favorite part about public speaking. They always say, don't ask a question, but I just feel obliged to ask a question, and none of you respond. So thank you, family, for leaving me out in the dust tonight. Great. Um, if, I haven't, if I haven't met you, my name's Steve. I'm helping out here at Colossae Sherwood. Just super glad you guys are with us tonight. Uh, and tonight, we're going to be continuing in our followers series, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. But first, I want to talk about the worst class you've ever had in school. Think of it. What's the worst class you ever had in school? Was it, was it math like you could not make a spreadsheet work at all? Math is great. I'm, not, I'm against that and everything. English, where's my English fans? Who's the English? Okay. No, okay. I think we changed from worst class to best class. Let's, we're going to start over. Worst class in high school was what? History. History? Oh, chemistry. Okay, so stuff blew up in y'all's face. It just, oh, history was the worst? Okay, okay, so history, chemistry. So for me, what's interesting about school is that for me, like when I got into my undergraduate and graduate work, all I studied was Jesus. So every other facet of Jesus. So when I say that there was the worst class I ever had, many of you will likely judge me because one of them, it was about Jesus. So, um... Can I, I had three semesters of this in my kind of seminary schooling, but can anyone guess what the worst class for me in seminary was? If any of you all say preaching, I'm dropping the mic and leaving right now. <laughs> say what? Her, hermeneutics? Who said Hebrew? Hebrew. That's the one. Hebrew. Hebrew hated me. Um, Hebrew hated me because of the fact that I am not a detail-oriented person. Um, anything language study that you take a look at, it is just tough. Like, if you are an engineer, bless your heart, like, you will do great at language study. Um, I am not an engineer, so I barely pass with, like, C-, minus, barely. And the thing for me is that as I look back in my time in that class, what I came to realize is that the issue wasn't that I wasn't learning anything. The issue is that I was lazy. Here's what happens. When you grow up and you're told you're intelligent, your life, which to some of your surprise, I was told I was intelligent, FYI. Um, but what that causes in you is it causes you to be lazy. So, so like when I don't have to work hard at a subject, I'm like, I'm kind of bright. I can handle this. So then I come to Hebrew and I'm like, this class is stupid. When in reality, I was just lazy, okay? So that's, that's what happened. But when I, when I really look back at my time in Hebrew, what Hebrew helped me learn is it really helped me love the Old Testament. It really helped me love God's Word. And um, my Hebrew professor, if he's listening to this, would be very happy that I said that publicly instead of mocking that. But at the end of the day, Hebrew matters because I think many of us can treat our Bibles like the Gideon's New Testament. You guys ever seen those little Gideon New Testament? It's like you got the New Testament, and then you got the Psalms, and you got Proverbs, and that's good enough for you. And yet, when we don't understand the Old Testament, we are missing like three-fourths of what God has revealed to us. Um, You know, there's a common view every now and again that I hear that the God of the Old Testament is this vengeful, wrathful being who who goes on just genocidal rants and just destroys people. And, And yet you see the New Testament God of love and peace and joy in Jesus Christ. And yet, if we don't understand the Old Testament, we, and we don't understand things like church history, we realize that that's actually a heresy 
that started way back in the third century. It's called the Marcionite heresy, where people just had two different views of God. The God of the Old Testament is this wrathful God and vengeful God, when in reality, the God of the Old Testament is this loving, faithful, faithful God. And so tonight, we're going to take a look at what Jesus has to say about the Old Testament in Matthew. So if you have your Bibles or your fake Bible on your phone, grab it out. Matthew 5, uh, chapter 17, or no, Matthew 5, chapter, yeah, Matthew 5, verse 17. I told you I wasn't detail-oriented, so here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we're just, we're going to look at verse 17 to start us off. So 17 says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so think about the cultural setting. Jesus is sitting on a hill. You have probably thousands of people following him. And you have a mixed crowd, right? You have followers, you have skeptics, you have religious leaders, you have kind of a mixed crowd audience listening to Jesus. And what they just heard, they heard about the Beatitudes, that these aren't ways to be blessed, but these are the people that God are for. God is for the broken. God is for the needy. God is for the persecuted. And so as people who live underneath his ethic, we need to be those same people. And last week, Bucky talked about being salt and light. So really, it's not something that we have to do. It's really something who we are. We are salt. We are light. And the reality is, many of us are either doing great at it, or we're not doing so great at it. And last week was a good heart check, I think, for us to look at our identity and say, how am I being salt? How am I being light? Because I already am in this culture. And so tonight, we're looking at the next thing Jesus brings up, and he talks about the law and the prophets. So what we've seen so far is that Jesus flips things on its head. You have the expected outcome that a lot of people think Jesus is going to say, and then at the very end, he's going to switch it. And so, um, you know, spoiler alert, that's going to happen tonight. It's going to happen in a lot of the sermons. At at the very end, Jesus is going to switch something. So the first thing he said is that he was going to come and fulfill the law. So many thought he was probably going to abolish the law. When you had teachers and preachers in the day, they would always come with normally something new. So when Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm not going to actually bring you something new. I'm going to bring you something that you already know, something that you're already familiar with, and I'm going to bring fulfillment to. So essentially, what's the law? What's the prophets? Essentially put, the law and the prophets is the Old Testament. So while there's many genres of literature in the Old Testament, you have historical narrative like First and Second Samuel. You have poetry like Psalms. You have wisdom literature like um, Ecclesiastes. You have all these different types of genres, but Jesus is talking about specifically the law and the prophets. And that refers to the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, commonly known as the Pentateuch. And that was the law that God gave his people. And the prophets are the mouthpieces of God. So whenever you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the other major prophets, or you look at some of the minor prophets like Hosea or Malachi, they were mouthpieces for God's work. So when Jesus is saying that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's talking about something that these people knew, something that they were very aware of because of their cultural context. So this is a very exciting thing for them. He's not coming to just say, hey, I'm going to bring something new. 
he's coming to fulfill what they already knew. And so in the midst of this, Jesus is essentially saying, all that direct revelation you got from God, remember Sinai, remember when you got the Ten Commandments, remember when you got Deuteronomy, the laws of how you're supposed to live as God's people amongst the nations? Remember that? Remember all the prophets who spoke to God's people to say, repent of your sins and come back to God, repent of your sins and come back to God? Remember all that, all that direct revelation? Guys, I'm standing in front of you now as the Savior of the world, giving you direct revelation from God. So it wasn't just tablets of stone, or it wasn't just, uh, you know, prophet's voice. It really was Jesus Christ who came to fulfill this law. Now, for them, the Old Testament would have closed 400 years earlier. So the cultural context here is that God hasn't said a word for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so God comes down to give a word after hundreds of years of silence. And this is some of Jesus' first public words in his ministry. So if he came to fulfill them and not abolish them, what does that mean? How intensely is Jesus going to fulfill the law and the prophets? This takes us to verse 18. So it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I want to put a little bit of Hebrew up on the screen for you guys to see. Okay? So this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. The best part about this is that it's the simplest verse I could find. So, and I have another translator, so my Hebrew prof isn't going to be upset that I probably messed that up. But when you look at the Hebrew language, there's lots of characters. So in the middle, you have all the characters, all of the consonants, essentially. On the top and the bottom, you have dots. And those are the vowels that were added later by some of the scribes. But when Jesus is talking about, in Hebrew, not an iota, not a dot is going to be taken away from the law, he is incredibly specific. He's incredibly specific. So this, essentially, this says, let there be light, and there was light in Genesis chapter 3. So look at the second character. So in Hebrew, all you left-handed people would love Hebrew because you don't get that pencil on your hand, you know, when you're doing the writing stuff. So we start from the right, we go to the left. The second character in is called the Yod. It's the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's the smallest letter. So when Jesus says not the iota is going to be taken away, he's talking about that specific character, the iota. So that's the yod he's speaking of there. And then we're going to go to the next slide. Now, that's specifically called a jot, what I just told you. This is what a dot, or commonly known as a tittle, would have been called. Okay? So some, like the King James translation says, not a jot or a tittle from the law is going to be taken away. So on the left, you have the Hebrew letter chet. On the right, you have the Hebrew letter tav. The only difference is on the right-hand side, you have that bottom stroke that goes out. So when Jesus is talking about the dot or the tittle of the law not being taken away, he's talking about that little pen stroke, just that. So essentially, Jesus is saying, everything that's written in the Old Testament, I am going to fulfill. There's not going to be a little dot or a little dash that I'm not going to fulfill in who I am. And there's a couple of instances that you see later in Scripture of Jesus really being the illustration of what he just said. So think of the transfiguration, right? Jesus takes his two top apostles, Peter and John, and they're walking up a hill. All of a sudden, huge flash of light. Jesus shows up with who? Moses on one side, Elijah on the other. That is a visual picture of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law who was given to Moses and the prophets who was given to Elijah. That's a picture of Jesus being the fulfillment of what he said. And then later on in Luke 
you have the, the road to Emmaus, right? After the resurrection, you have these two guys saying, this is all the stuff that Jesus did. I don't know what to do now. And they're like, how, Jesus shows up in an angelic form and walks alongside them. And what does the text say? It says he walks them through literally in the beginning with Moses and the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, there is literally nothing in the law that will not be fulfilled. Nothing. Not a literal dot, not a literal tittle will be taken away. So when Jesus fulfills this, it's all-inclusive. It's an all-inclusive thing. He is making a massive statement to Hebrew people. Everything that you've banked on, everything that you've set your hope in, all of the silence that you've endured for 400 years, I've come to fulfill it. It's massive. And so because the simplicity of this text is none of this is going to pass away, he jumps quickly into his next phrase in verse 19. So follow this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus gets pretty strong about what he says in verse 19. The reason why he gets strong is remember that mixed audience again, right? Who's all there? You have followers, you have skeptics, and then you have religious leaders. So Jesus gets super strong in verse 19. For the Hebrew mindset, you have a couple of different types of laws. You have great laws, you have the least law, which Jesus is referring to here. And another way to say is there's light commandments and heavy commandments. So the Pharisees had 613 oral laws that they took from the Old Testament that they lived by. Some of them were greater laws, and some of them were weaker laws. So here are two examples of what a light commandment would have been considered and a great commandment would have been considered. So in Deuteronomy, it won't be on the screen, but just listen. The light commandment sounds something like this. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. That's a light commandment, and it deals with chickens, okay? So it's it's not a major issue, but it is a commandment in God's law. A heavy commandment would have been seen like this in Deuteronomy 5. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So regardless of whether it was a light law or a heavy law, they still end with that same phrase, that it may go well with you. The purpose of the law was given to God's people so that it might go well with them in the land and have a long and lasting life because they're living underneath God's law and living underneath God's ways. So when Jesus is saying you can't relax any of it, the word relax is actually break. It's to break the law. It's not just to kind of be lenient on it. It's essentially saying there's some laws that you consider awesome, other laws you relax or you break. So Jesus is saying that the law matters, that all of this needs to be upheld, whether it's about birds or whether it's about parents. It's all about how God's people are supposed to be. And now Jesus goes after the scribes and the Pharisees. So now he's talking about them casually. Don't be like the religious leaders who break the law here and then uphold the law here. Then verse 20, he just goes right after him. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So 
All of what you've just heard, guys, let's get one thing straight. If you're not righteous, more righteous than a scribe, more righteous than a Pharisee, you ain't making it. You're not making the cut. So the issue of this text is this. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. A couple weeks ago, I preached on a discipleship message called Follow Me, where I talked a little bit about first century, you know, discipleship patterns. And, you know, if you're speaking to this culture, these boys grew up in Hebrew culture, which means by four, they're learning the Old Testament. By 14, they're supposed to have it memorized. Then they pursue a rabbi and have the question and answer session of their life. And if they get things wrong, they don't get chosen. So one of them, maybe two of them, gets chosen to follow after a rabbi. And those guys, those guys were the scribes. Those guys were the Pharisees, depending upon what rabbi you chose. So imagine the crowd's response. This was shocking to them. This absolutely shocked them. This is Jesus flipping everything on the head. For them and their culture, the the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous of righteous. They lived life in adherence to God's law. That was their whole purpose. I mean, essentially, if I were to put myself in their shoes, it's saying this. Wait, Jesus, you said that my righteousness has to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees? That's like asking me to have better basketball skills than LeBron James. Ain't going to happen. That's like asking me to be a better cook than Gordon Ramsay. It's not going to happen. Or asking me to be a better artist than Van Gogh. It's not going to happen. It's like that's the standard, the quality that people would have looked at and said, I can't live like that. I can't do it. That's exactly what the, the crowds would have thought. There's no chance. For the scribes and Pharisees, there's no, they're known for how well they adhere to the law what they're known for. And yet, for, for the people in the crowd, they're like, okay, Jesus, I can't live up to that. In their mindset, obedience equaled righteousness. So disobedience equaled unrighteousness. And see, my favorite part about preaching the Bible in segments is that you come to a text like this, and for me, this is like the cliffhanger ending to a good, like, episode of The Bachelor. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Like, you get to the end, there's this relational turmoil, and it says to be continued. And you're like, I want to know what happens! So for us, we kind of get that moment of, this is where Jesus stops the text for us tonight. But there's, I think, a couple of things that we need to take away from this text for us. We have to take the text from then, understand it, what was going on in their world, and then bring it to ours. The beauty of the Bible is it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. It's not written, you know, directly to us here in Sherwood, but the reality is we get to live by what God says. So there's two things I want us to consider when it comes to this text. We need to be a people who honor the Old Testament. We have to be. If we are God's people, we have to be able to honor the Old Testament. And second, we need to be a people who understand what true righteousness is. So first, we need to be the people who honor the Old Testament. If Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, the question for you is, do you and I even read it? Do do we? I didn't have, like, my devotions in Leviticus this morning, FYI. Like, I'm not reading about lamb slaughtering and going, yay, devotions. I'm not doing that. But the reality is, is that if Jesus has come to fulfill that, and we don't even read it, 
most of the time, if we're honest, we are neglecting three-fourths of God's character. We're neglecting three-fourths of God's written revelation to us. What's crazy is that we can't know who God is unless he shows up, unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. One of the beautiful things of why I think the Bible is such a, a profound answer to the problems of our day, especially when it comes to mankind. If I wrote a book about myself, I ain't going to make myself the villain. I'm going to make myself the best dude ever. So if God writes this book and he's honest about our reality, it would make sense that God's the author and not myself. It would make sense that God is the one to tell me the truth about who I am. There's so much of us to know about God through the Old Testament. There's so many wrong views we have of God because of our wrong reading of the Old Testament. But what if we were a church that was different? What if we were a church that preached Genesis? Pretty cool, right? That we got to preach through an Old Testament book of the Bible. So many churches don't even do that. That's why I love being a part of Colossae because we genuinely say, whatever's in this book, we're going to preach. It doesn't matter. It could be old, it could be new, but we're going to go after it. So for us, if we're going to value the Old Testament... I think we have to understand what it means to be righteous, too. Because as the Christian, oftentimes we read the Old Testament like it doesn't really matter. We're not living by those laws. You know, everything's new in Jesus. That's what people say. So the Old Testament doesn't really matter. But if Jesus fulfilled it, it matters a ton. It matters more than we think we know. So do you remember how I said that throughout the series, Jesus is going to flip things on its head for people? When he said that last statement, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, jaws dropped in the crowd. This was radical. For them, they thought the Pharisees were the most righteous. Jesus knew that the Pharisees were the most hypocritical. That's what Jesus knew. Look at uh, Matthew 23, 23. I'll be on the screen. It says this. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and scribes later in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. At this point in time, it's like he is yelling. He is getting after them. This is not kind, nice Jesus. This is flipping over tables, whipping a lash Jesus. This is how aggressive he is here. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Essentially, he's like, you're awesome because you tithe your spice rack. Good job, bro. You, you come to the temple and you bring the quote-unquote grain offerings, great. But do you care about your neighbor? Do you love people? Or do you just use what you have for your own personal gain? The scribes and the Pharisees lived in strict adherence to the law, and they were quote-unquote righteous. But they couldn't adhere to all of it. Remember, remember verse 19? If you break one part of the law, essentially you're breaking all of it. So the question tonight for us is this. Does your righteousness and my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? That's the question. And the text says a resounding yes. Our righteousness is better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because it's not our own. It's not our own righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's not our awesomeness. It's not, I'm killing it here, I'm killing it there. It's the fact that Jesus fulfilled this for us. It's the fact that Jesus is the one who is our righteousness. This is our reality. This is what we live in right now. Paul says two important things regarding our righteousness in Romans 3. 
It'll be on the screen. For by works of the law, no human being will be made righteous in his sight. Since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What the Pharisees didn't know is that their righteousness wasn't righteousness at all. What the Pharisees didn't know is that their righteousness could never live up to the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus is pointing out that their righteousness is really hypocrisy. And real righteousness comes in himself. And here's why this matters for us. It matters for us as Christians, and it matters for us in the world. So first, for Christians, this is great news. This is legitimately the best news you've heard all day. That Jesus Christ is our righteousness. You know what that does for us? It frees us. We, we live as people who are bound by the conscience of the Holy Spirit now. We don't live in a way that just has to be a rule checker or a box checker and say, hey, I'm killing it here and I'm not killing it here. And we live by that grid. We get to live in grace. We get to live in this new posture of life. You see, this allows us to live in grace and not legalism. Those are the two spots that the Christian lives in. Grace or legalism. There's no middle ground. Legalism's focus is this. To try to do godly things, to say godly words, to think godly thoughts, despite the reality of our sinful hearts, without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's legalism at its core. Trying to do stuff and be stuff apart from the Spirit of God. And the beautiful thing is grace is that in spite of our sinful reality, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to do godly things, say godly things, and think godly things. But if we're honest, many of us still live in a, in a legalistic relationship with God. Don't you feel closer to God when you're not sinning? Don't you feel closer to God when you're doing great? Think of what Paul says in Romans 5, that, that, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're killing it. It matters if you stink and you recognize that. That's what matters. And this will settle our weary hearts. If you are weary tonight, be reminded that you're loved despite what you do. And oftentimes, in spite of what you do, you're loved. That's the gift of grace that God gives us. We're loved, we're holy, we're pure, we're his. I said this before and I'll say it again. When Paul addresses the church all throughout the New Testament, he doesn't say, what's up, crazy sinners? He says, to the holy saints in Corinth, to those who are, who are new people by the grace of God. And you see, this doesn't only matter for us that we get to live in a different posture now. We can be humble people. We can be authentic people. We can be honest people. You know what's crazy? We're all liars in the church, aren't we? We show up and we're doing, hey, how's everything going? Great. Lie. <laughs> You're not doing great. That's true. That's true. And yet, at the same exact time, we get to be these holy, beautiful free people. We don't have to wake up feeling like we're not loved. We get to wake up knowing that we are loved. 
And this matters for the world too. I mean, the, the key to understanding this text and how it applies to us, do we live in the realms of grace or do we live in the realms of legalism? And, and I think a text not only has to speak to the believers in the community, the text has to speak to the community at large. It can't ju- this can't just be for the church or else I'm closing the doors. <laughs> this has to be for people outside the walls of the church, for people who are not a part of the community. This is crucial for us to understand if we live in Sherwood, Tualatin, Wilsonville, Newburgh, like, like these suburbs, this matters. You see, there's a danger when it comes to living in a suburb. The danger is this. Many consider themselves to be good people with good values and good morals with good school systems. That's kind of But the issue is, is that we have to demonstrate a new righteousness to this community. There there can be a facade that ex- I think exists a little bit more in suburbs and cities. So think of Portland proper, right? Portland just to use a horrible phrase lets it all hang out, right? That's just what Portland is. You go to Portland, you see Portland, this is who Portland is. They're, they're not hiding any of it. You come to the suburbs, and you have beautiful houses, incredible spouses, two and a half kids, maybe a dog, half a cat, I don't know. But what we don't see is we don't see the domestic abuse happening. What we don't see is we don't see the drug addiction that's occurring in our community. What we don't see is the lack of generosity because we desire comfort above anything. And what that portrays is that Sherwood comes across as a community that's righteous already. They've got it handled. They're good. They don't need Jesus. 86% of Washington County has zero religious affiliation. 86% of Washington County has zero religious affiliation. That literally means there's a blank slate. There's a blank slate. We can start from scratch with these people. We can start and tell them about the good news of Jesus. And this is, I think, my fear for us as I'm a part of Colossae Sherwood. Do we look any different? Do we? Or have we, do we just look like the other Sherwoodians around us? You know? Or do we... Do we stand out in a community that doesn't want us to stand out? And if we stand out, are we standing out because we're annoying? Or are we standing out because of Christ's righteousness in us that shines bright like the light of the world we saw last week? You know, like the salt of the earth that preserves the gospel and makes the gospel palatable for people. Are we those type of people? I think a great lie that we can see in our community and other communities around the world is this. We exchange our Christianity for morality a lot of the time. We exchange who we've been made to be into being people who live by good deeds and by good works, but for wrong motivations. We can exchange our morality for Christianity. We can exchange living as a good person instead of becoming and being transformed into a godly one. To those around us, do we come across more like the Pharisees trying to live out this perfect life or do we come across more like the children of God, grace-filled and with a new righteousness? Morality and good values does not equal righteousness in the sight of God. 
You can be the best person, live a great life, make lots of money, have two and a half kids, and at the end of your life, stand before God and say, God, I had it all, and he'll say, you didn't have me. And that's the motivation that this text gives us, is that we have to demonstrate a different righteousness to this community. That we walk around as real, authentic people. This is how we get to be salt and light in a community that has a facade. You show your brokenness. You invite them into your brokenness. Because who's there? Jesus. He's there in your brokenness. He's there. So when you invite them into your brokenness, you invite them to actually see who Jesus is. This is the beauty of community that we get to live in. We get to have deep relationships in this community to show that relationships come from the church. Real depth comes from being a part of God's people. And the beautiful thing is that then when we demonstrate that new righteousness, we invite them into this community of faith. We say, come to Jesus. Know him, not good works. Know him, not a bank account. Know him, not your perfect life, which isn't perfect anyway. That's what you and I get to do as disciple makers, right? As God's people unleashed in this community to make him known. I want to end with this verse. John Calvin called this the most wonderful exchange. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a core text in the New Testament. If we don't get this, we don't get, get, we don't get Jesus. Jesus became sin, the most humble, perfect, sinless man. He didn't just sin on our behalf. He became it. In the sight of the Father's eyes, he became the one who endured the wrath, the shame, the guilt that we deserved. And what do we get? We get righteousness. We get goodness. We get relationship from the Father. So I want to encourage you tonight that as Jesus talks about fulfilling the Old Testament, he's talking about righteousness. He's talking about where our righteousness comes from and more specifically who it's from. So let me pray for us. We're going to sing and respond. We're going to have a couple of announcements afterwards. But Marcus, come on up, my man. We'll, we'll pray and we'll sing together.